Hi everyone, I'm Annie and I'm going to be doing the Bible reading for us this morning. So the reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 and we're going to read all the way through to chapter 3 verse 18. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are, to God, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I'm a little bit fearful that a gust of wind could come in and blow my things. So if that happens, Sam and Will, can you be my, like, gather men who just... They're my emergency. Thank you. All right. Uh, thanks for the Bible reading. Annie, let me pray. Start as well. Our Father, we pray for clarity and understanding as we read your word this morning. Pray that you would teach and challenge us. Please grant us the wisdom and humility to apply what we learn to our lives as well. 
in Jesus' name. So I'm, I'm with a friend and it's approaching Easter time and the pair of us are handing out surveys to do with Easter, um, asking what people think about it and what they think about, particularly about, about Jesus around Easter time. We've been handing out for a couple of hours and at one point, a couple of my friends that I recognised from high school come past and they hand them the flyers and I notice as they read them and realise it's about Jesus and about Christianity, I see their facial expressions sort of blunt a bit, they lose a bit of expression and I remember feeling so anxious and concerned at that moment. Um, I didn't strike up a question, I tried to like ask what they'd written and why and, and use it as an opportunity to, to explore what they thought. Um, I can't, unlike, unlike everyone else that handed surveys out to that morning, I just I was hoping that they'd, they'd get them in, like tick off, hand it back and, and let them move on. Let that tension that I was feeling pass, just get it out of, out, of, out of my sight. And the question is, why did I feel that way? Um, was, it, was it because I was uncomfortable with this situation, uncomfortable with sharing the gospel? Why was I so much more comfortable than sharing with strangers all morning? Why was it more difficult with my friends? Um, and I, th- I think it, it's not... Was it, was it fear of embarrassment fear of rejection. I think that's definitely part of it. Um, but I don't think that it was, it was that I was ashamed of the gospel in this case, but rather that with my friends, I felt more personally responsible, personally responsible for the way they received the gospel. Because I had a relationship with them, I felt like I had more control, more, you know, res- authority or, or whatever it would be over the way they understood Christianity and that it was, there was more hinging on me about whether they would one day actually come to Christ. Now, ironically, this sense of responsibility, it didn't, it didn't make me feel more confident in sharing with them. It actually made me freeze. I was paralysed because suddenly my status, my reputation to them the way they perceived me became so much more important. And if I didn't, if I wasn't confident that I could articulate everything well and perfectly and clearly and appear well thought, uh, I was I was too afraid to to say and share in those opportunities. If I lost my status, then I thought I would fail in my job at witnessing to them. Now I wonder if any of you have ever felt a similar situation like that. The burden of a responsibility to seem important and intelligent and well-respected for the sake of being more effective in sharing the gospel. And if you have, if any of us have, then the passage tonight, this morning, uh, should help remind us what our role really is in gospel ministry. And it's a humbling reminder. It's a reminder that the effectiveness of our ministry It does not come from our competence or our reputation. It comes from the power of God and the power of the message itself. So some brief context I want to go over first about 2 Corinthians and and when this letter was written. At the time of writing, Paul had been dealing with some opposing leaders in the church of Corinth, opposing leaders in the church. Uh, And these people were wealthy, 
they were, they were successful. They were well-respected members of Roman society. And Paul himself says that they are eloquent speakers and, and very good teachers. But on, on the other hand, Paul describes himself as poor, as being often persecuted. And he admits that he's not a well-trained public speaker. And so many of the people in the Church of Corinth have been choosing to listen to these other, other teachers over Paul at times. They appeared more impressive, more successful, more well-respected. But their teaching was not sincere to the true gospel. And so in this letter, Paul challenges them to relook at their priorities uh, with the kind of teaching that they receive and the kind of witnessing they're doing in gospel ministry. So, let's look at what it says, verse, starting at verse 14. We read, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? So what is going on here? It's a bit of a bizarre passage on its first reading. Try and imagine this scene with me. There's been a, a great battle has just taken place. And Jesus has actually is, has led one of the armies out in this battle. And his army has been victorious. Jesus has won the battle. He's now returning to the city. Jesus is coming, army behind him. The streets are crowded with people awaiting for him to enter through. He's at the front, atop a chariot or a horse or something like that. And the doors open and the people start cheering as he proceeds down the street, celebrating the victory of the, of the battle won. Now, amidst his army, there are slaves who have been captured and rescued, freed from the, the opposing army, and these captive slaves have been given the job of carrying bowls of incense that are burning. And those, the aromas from the incense are spread throughout the streets and they're part of the message, they're part of the celebration, alerting people that the battle is won. So people smell these incense and they know the battle's over and Jesus has returned victorious. Now some people, when they smell that incense those who, want, who love and follow Jesus, it fills them with joy. Uh, but to those who oppose him, it fills them with dread and fear, knowing that he's returned. So that's the scene that is, that is being painted here. And, and, and realize that these kinds of processions were a very common part in Roman society. Romans were often off to war and then would return and celebrate their victory and, and demonstrate their power, marching through the streets, showing off to the people of the different conquered, conquered cities and stuff as they expanded. So this, this idea is a lot more familiar perhaps to the Corinthians than, than it is to us on our first reading. But where is Paul saying that he is in this procession? This is Paul, the, the uh, mighty, uh, our great apostle, who's written so much of our, our New Testament writings, um, so much of our, our scripture. Is he at the head next to Jesus, you know, in a mighty suit of armor, like this powerful, mighty herald of the king? No, where is he? He's saying he's one of the captives. 
freed slave, he's carrying a bowl of incense. He takes no credit in the victory. He has no important status or honoured position. His only role is to carry these aromas of the victory and to spread the news of Jesus' triumph to the people in the city. His point is that Jesus is the impressive one. His role is a humble one. He's just a captive messenger. And as he recognises his role as a messenger, he also recognises the limitations of his role, that his task is to spread the message, but he's actually not responsible for how the people in the city receive it. We look back at verse 15 and 16. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death, to the other, an aroma that brings life. In this procession, there will be those to whom this aroma is a message of death. To those who oppose the news of the gospel, that don't acknowledge Jesus' victory, don't want to follow his rule, their rejection of him, it condemns them. But if that happens, it doesn't mean that Paul has failed in his task of spreading the aroma. His job is not to make sure all people accept the gospel with resounding joy, but that they hear it and hear it taught truthfully. And how they respond to it, that's not in his hands. So where do you, where do we usually imagine ourselves in that kind of scene. We might not actually have ever thought of that scene before, but in terms of the role of of spreading the gospel, how do we tend to imagine our status, our, our position? Are we people who need to appear impressive, to have great influence, great authority, to be to be able to assure that all people who hear the gospel resound with joy... And, and, and assure that that is the outcome? Or are we to be like Paul? Humble captives tasked with faithfully spreading the message of Jesus' triumphant return. Now that is a humbling truth, but it also is a reassuring one because we know the news we spread is important. The battle is over. Jesus has won. And the gospel message, it's powerful. It's a message of life and death to those who hear it. And that power does not rely on us to be victorious as messengers. The power comes from the fact that the Saviour, our Saviour, is victorious. Um, There's a a well-known phrase that goes something like, history is written by the winners. I think Winston Churchill is quoted to have said, said it at, at some point, but I'm not actually sure if that's originally where it came from. But regardless, we hear this idea of history is written by the winners, and in a lot of cases, it's certainly true. Uh, Roman history, if you've ever looked into it, it's, and Roman rules are full of examples of this, where they're trying to leave the history records showing how great different rulers and different, different characters in Roman history are. One of my favourite stories is of Julius Caesar, a time he gets captured by pirates and the pirates demand that he pays a ransom of 20 talents of silver, which when I, I looked it up, 
uh, is roughly about $600,000 in modern, roughly, something like that. $20,000 of silver. Now, Caesar, he, he said to laugh at the pirates' faces and say, you clearly don't know who I am. And he demands that they raise the ransom to 50 talents of silver. So we're talking over a million dollars. He said, that's what I'm worth. That's what you're going to get paid for me. Of course, the pirates happily agree. They send away one of Caesar's associates who bring back the money. He's freed. And then Caesar quickly gets to work at rounding up an army, tracking them down, killing them all very violently, and then taking his wealth back, plus all of their wealth. And then most importantly, makes sure that, that history remembers that that event actually happened. So, so Just so that a, a young guy can use it as a sermon illustration 2,000 years later. Very kind of him. So... <laughs> There, there were may, maybe many, many exaggerations in that, but compare that, the winner writing his own history to the history of the gospel, where we have early church leaders who were killed. You should look at the example like Stephen, stoned to death by his own people. And you had Paul at the time witnessing it, who later then became transformed by the same message, and then who also was killed. You know, the early Christians were so heavily persecuted for their belief. Would you call them the winners of history? And yet the gospel message has survived. And it's made it through a lot of other situations in the last 2,000 years that could have destroyed it or corrupted it or had it altered through sinful leadership or other forms of oppression. And yet somehow, when we look at our modern scriptures compared to the oldest archaeological records we find, it remains remarkably uncorrupted. Surely that is a, a testament to God's power at work, despite the weakness and sinfulness of man to preserve his message to us. It hasn't been about the winners making sure the gospel makes it to us. And through, through this message... The people who hear it are radically transformed to live and share it even to the point of death. But if it was up to those humans alone, probably it would have been destroyed or corrupted long ago. The point is, I'm trying to make is that this gospel, the gospel, the scriptures, the credit does not go to the church. It does not go to great leaders. It does not go to mighty figures as we see with the Roman history. It doesn't, go to the, it doesn't go to the winners, it goes to God, to His power, the works of His Spirit to transform human hearts when it's taught faithfully. Now, Paul shares this sort of same notion, the same idea in the next section of our passage this morning. He, he says that his ministry has been effective among the Corinthians, but the effectiveness has not come from his own competence, his own qualifications. It came from the power of God working in those who heard it. He starts uh, chapter 3, verse 1, with this rhetorical question as an attack to these other leaders who have been teaching, teaching otherwise. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now, Paul needing a rec- letter of recommendation to teach at the church in Corinth is ridiculous because he founded it. If it wasn't for him, there would be no church. He'd clearly been effective. 
what further recommendation does he need? But that's not his point. That's not what Paul is saying. His point is not that they should listen to him because of what he's achieved among them. It's, be- it's that his ministry was effective because of God's power. God worked through the message he delivered to transform their hearts. That's the only letter of recommendation needed. He says in verse 2 and 3, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You know that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. God works through this message, writing on people's hearts, transforming their lives. Previously, Corinth was full, like you read in the first letter to the Corinthians, full of factions and divisions. They were often inconsiderate, unloving, intolerable of one another. All sorts of sexual immorality and different practices going on. And there's been change from that. But but the emphasis here is is not that this transformation came because of Paul's great teaching or because of his great qualifications or his great connections. It came because the message he taught was true. And God worked through it. Paul's competence as a minister comes from God's power. We read in verse 5 and 6. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He made us competent as ministers of a new confidence, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. When the Gospel is taught faithfully and sincerely, the authority of His message will speak for itself as God works in the lives of those who receive it. So the sharing of the Gospel, it it relies on God's power, not on the competence of its messengers. Um, for this next section, I, I wonder if you've ever read the Old Testament, any, any passages from the Old Testament, and, and wondered what it would actually be like to physically witness God's glory and His power at work. You know, think of when Moses was part of the Red Sea. What would it be like to see that? We don't see that kind of thing much anymore. You see, to actually receive the manna from heaven, God raining down to provide for His people... Not necessarily to live in those times, I know life would be hard, but to just be able to see and experience God's power and glory in that way. What about the time Moses came down from Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments and his face was literally glowing so brightly that the Israelites could not look at him directly just from being in God's presence. Just think of some of the glory that the Israelites were able to see in those times. Well, this is what Paul has to say about that. If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? 
If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Under our new covenant, through Christ, there is far, far more glory than the old covenant could ever possibly hope to reveal. Moses' glowing face was a temporary effect after being in God's presence, but the new covenant, it's everlasting. And this new covenant, it it does something else as well. It allows us to peel back the veil that once separated us from God. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, as Moses comes down off the mountain, his face is glowing, the Israelites can't look at it, so he puts on a veil. Now, this veil, it, it protects the Israelites' eyes. That's one of the purposes it's, it is. The, the, the glory is too bright. But it also did something else. It also stopped them from being able to fully witness God's glory in its fullness. It actually obstructed their view. Now, Paul uses this imagery, this idea, to explain their understanding of the Scriptures as well. He says that similarly... There is a veil covering the hearts of people who do not know Jesus. It protects them from God's glory, but it also separates them from his power to transform them. Read in verse 14 to 18. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord who is the Spirit, sorry, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. With this new message and new covenant of ever-increasing glory, we can now receive the full glory of God. We can safely dwell in His presence and His Spirit can dwell in us. And it's by the working of that Spirit that we are transformed into His image. I want to encourage you to think about the ways you've seen this this glorious transformation taking place. We don't see the, the glowing faces, but think of the ways God has worked in your heart or the heart of those around you that you've seen. I'm sure you can think of dozens of examples. I, my mind goes to many of the elders I was fortunate enough to work with in the last year in, up in Cairns, men well into their 70s and 80s, but whose lifetime, over their lifetime, had been shaped slowly and changed slowly by living out the gospel for many years in the way they would humbly serve others selflessly but also joyfully. Now, they, of course, they weren't perfect, but the, you see the, the glory of the, pow- the power and influence of the gospel in their lives, that God had clearly worked in their hearts over many years, and you could see that not through impressive dominant displays of strength and status, but through their quiet Christ-like loving of others. So we don't, we don't physically see God's glory, perhaps, in the same way the Israelites did, but, but it is here. 
we do see it at work among those of us who carry this message of the new covenant. We may not glow, but I, I imagine that theoretically if I could get a special pair of glasses that let me see the spiritual realities of the world, see into the spiritual realities, as I stand up here and look out over you, with every one of you who has received Christ, we're told that this, His Spirit dwells in you. Just think about how bright this room would be compared to what we see with Moses' face. So we don't need to appear impressive, glorious or powerful. Effective ministry does not require glorious messengers. The message itself is glorious. So as we think about how we go about teaching the Word, witnessing the Word, living it out to others, I encourage you to remember our role, remember our task. As Christ's captives, let's model ourselves from what Paul is saying, not these opposing teachers of high status. It's not about appearing impressive. We don't need to feel ashamed or afraid of people rejecting the message of Christ's victory. The role we've been given is to spread the good news of Jesus faithfully. And the effectiveness of that news does not depend on our competence or our reputation. So as we share it, remember, we're not victorious, we're not powerful, and we're not glorious, but we don't need to be. Be confident, because our message is about our Saviour, Jesus. He is victorious, He is powerful, and our covenant in Him is glorious. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Christ who has been victorious and rescued us. Thank you for giving us the good news of his victory so that we can receive him as our king and follow him. Please help us to faithfully teach and share this message to all around us, both when we are received joyfully and when we face rejection or opposition. Teach us humility to recognise that this ministry relies on your power and not our own competence. We pray that you would reveal your glory to the world through the message of this new covenant. In Jesus' name, Amen.